Good morning. Bear with me a sec as I get a little situated. Sorry, uh, whoever this is that I'm co-opting. Is that me? Sorry. If I don't remember to put this back down. Okay, thanks. I don't want to kick your water, so we're going to move this too. I'll probably still kick it at some point. <clears throat> okay, good morning. We are continuing our sermon series this week, walking through the book of Exodus. Uh, and for a couple months, uh, we've been going through the first six chapters, and it's taken us literally months. Last week, we sped up really quick and jumped through chapters 7 through 11 and went through all the different plagues that God brought in judgment against Egypt. And we're going to slow way down again uh, for the next couple weeks, and we're going to camp today in the first 13 verses of chapter 12. We're going to talk about the last plague, where God brings judgment on all the firstborn throughout Egypt. What the story is going to show us is that Jesus Christ is the substitute for the world and God's grand plan of redemption. So I did this, that thing again this week that I've confessed to from this space before, which is I sat at my desk and cried while I watched the movie clip. It's a problem that I have. Um, and this week is probably the, the worst because the movie that I cried to was um, Armageddon, which is an incredibly uh, cheesy and uh, perfectly impossible movie. So if you don't know what this movie is, Armageddon is uh, Ben Affleck, Bruce Willis, Michael Bay flick, right? Um, It's from 1998. The premise is that there's an asteroid coming to Earth. And if the asteroid hits the Earth, uh, it's going to kill everyone and the Earth is going to blow up. And so they had this genius plan, which there's many a post on the Internet just disproving how ridiculous it is, uh, to go to an oil drilling crew, the best one on Earth, get them ready to go to space in two weeks, send them up there, drill a hole in the asteroid, put a nuke in there, and it blows apart, and both halves will miss Earth. Really plausible things uh, that are in this movie. Um, and, you know, Bruce Willis plays the hardened oil veteran whose beautiful daughter, Liv Tyler, is dating the irresponsible hotshot on the rig, Ben Affleck, you know, all the things. He hates Ben Affleck, whatever, you know, there's all the stuff. But um, the ending, right? The crew gets onto the asteroid, tons of things go wrong. They get the nuke planted in there. But of course, The remote to remotely, you know, click the nuke goes out. And someone has to stay on the asteroid and manually press the button, getting blown to smithereens, right, along with the asteroid. So they draw straws. Affleck draws the the shortest straw. And so Bruce Willis says, I'll walk down with you. And they go down there. And right as Ben Affleck is about to go and, and you know, die, essentially, uh, Bruce Willis pulls off his, his, uh, his oxygen tank pushes him back in the elevator, and Bruce Willis says, I will be the one to stay and manually uh, blow up the nuke. Uh, You go marry my daughter. But what got me sobbing was, um, and this was 98, uh, FaceTime wasn't around yet, but man, that video conference from the asteroid to NASA is like really clear. He calls his daughter, and he says says this, um, which really doesn't help the illustration at all. I just want to read it. He says, hi, Gracie. Hi, honey. I know I promised you I was coming home, but it looks like I'm going to have to break that promise. I wish I could be there to walk you down the aisle, but I'll look in on you from time to time. I love you, Grace. I got to go now. Guys, I was losing it. 
losing it. And, Ly- you know, I, think, I was thinking Lila the whole time, right? And his daughter, you know, says all these, like, sweet things. The best parts of me are you, all this stuff, and I'm losing it. But there's so much beauty going on in this cheesy moment. But the point is this. Bruce Willis, he substituted himself for Ben Affleck, right? Should have been at Ben Affleck. He drew the shortest straw. Bruce Willis takes his place, says, no, I will sacrifice myself. He valued Affleck's life more than his own. But even more than that, right, he substituted himself for the sake of the world. All of the world was in peril. They were about to die. And Bruce Willis said, I will die so that they can live. Without him staying back and pressing that button manually, everyone would have died. So the sake of the world was hanging in balance of Bruce Willis. Great art is subtle and nuanced. It always shows more than it tells. So Armageddon is not great art because it tells a lot more than it shows, especially in that, uh, that last scene. But I still found myself sobbing because it actually told something true. All great art is subtle and nuanced, but great art always tells part of the story of the gospel. And this movie shows us a picture of Christ, right? The story of the Bible culminates in this fact. Our sin... Our willful rebellion against God has left all of us in the same boat. All of mankind on an earth that essentially, in a lot of ways, has no hope. Bent on destruction with no hope for salvation. But Jesus Christ, God's firstborn son, chose to put himself in our place to substitute himself for us and sacrificed himself so that we could be saved. And this Passover event that we read... It really happened. I think it's important for us to realize. God brought judgment on Egypt for the sin that it caused against him and his people. But God also brought judgment on his own people for their sin. And he provided a substitute for his people so that they could be saved. So on the night that the destroyer of God came, that's what he calls the spirit that he sends the destroyer in verse 23. On the night that the destroyer came, a temporary and preliminary judgment day Unleashed on the earth, God provided something to turn away that destroyer. The only thing that stood between God and his judgment on that night, the ultimate power and force of the universe was one thing. And it was a lamb. One of the weakest, most overlooked creatures in the whole world. And that lamb was the only thing that was able to face the ultimate force in the universe on that night. The Passover is one of the most, uh, if not the most, important ritual of the Jewish people. It's the central story of their entire faith. And the revised Passover, the Lord's Supper, is the central focus of our worship. It's the center of our biblical faith and spiritual reality. And all of it is in remembrance of the bloody death of an innocent victim who substitute himself for the sake of the world. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is incredibly important. And this passage is rife with with symbology and theology, and we're going to get into it. Y'all know I love this stuff. But here's my hope. My hope is that this passage speaks directly to your heart. Don't let the symbology and the theology that we get into distract you from the most important thing, which is that Christ took your place. Our sin, our choice to rebel against God meant that we deserved death. And yet, where we deserve death, Christ put himself. Where we deserve to suffer, Christ put himself. 
where we deserved eternity apart from him, Christ went to hell and back again to purchase me and you. The Passover is a violent and beautiful story, but it pales in comparison to the violence and beauty we see at the cross. Hold tight to that hope and grace this morning that we see in the person and work of Jesus. And because the Passover was the most important ritual of the Jewish people, they're instructed to celebrate it yearly. And they do this so that they can remember both where they were and where God brought them to. And so this morning, we need to remember too. We need to remember that Christ substituted himself for us in God's grand plan of redemption. And this morning, we're going to do it three ways. You ready? First, we must remember who we were before Christ. We were estranged from him. We must remember who we are in Christ, adopted. And third, we must remember who we will be in Christ, glorified. So estranged, adopted, and glorified. So who we were before Christ, estranged from him. One thing that this passage shows us and reminds us is that without Christ in us, without that substitute, we'll, we're lost. We all deserve death. And there's a, there's a level of egalitarianism that exists for all of mankind. So all of our sinfulness puts us uh, in the same boat, in the same spot. And this passage shows that, that same egalitarianism too. Because in verse 12 it says this, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land, man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, because I am the Lord. And the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and I will see the blood. I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land. It's easy for us to miss the simple but horrifying fact. That in every single house in Egypt that night. There's going to be a dead son. Or a dead lamb. And the destroyer wasn't just coming for the Egyptians. Yes they were the enslavers. They were the oppressors. They did deserve judgment. But because of their sin. The Israelites. Despite being the oppressed and the abused also deserved judgment. So if the Israelites met judgment that night, they would die. If the Egyptians met judgment that night, they would die. But God provided a way out. He says in verse 8, They shall eat the flesh that night of the lamb, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled, but roasted, its head, its legs, and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you'll burn. So that night, every firstborn son in every Hebrew family looked at that lamb and they said, the only reason I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning is because this is here. It was substituted for me. Now, for us as modern readers, this seems really extreme, right? The, the entire idea of sin often for modern people seems extreme. Judgment seems archaic. But here's what the modern reader does affirm. It's this. The world is broken. And people do very wrong and horrendous things. It's, it's an inescapable for us to not affirm that. Sin is so prevalent and so easy to see in our society that it's both Christian and secular to affirm it. But the idea that anyone deserves judgment is very hard for the modern person. And I, I understand that. But I don't know if it should be. And here's why. Someone always pays a price for wrongdoing. Keller spells this out so well. There's always a price for wrong things that have been done. No wrongs can ever be forgiven without payment. Think about it this way. When someone hurts or wrongs you, what happens to you emotionally? 
There's something between you and that person. There's the wrong between the two of you. It can't be ignored. It's there. It's, it's, there's nothing you can do about it. You can either handle it two ways. You can make that person grovel and do things for you to make up the debt. You can make them suffer for what they did to you. This is probably the anti-biblical view and I think in practice makes someone bitter and sad. But the other option is to forgive the person, right? Which we would affirm is the biblical way. So when you think about the things that the person did to you to hurt you, you don't punish them for it. You let it go. When you want to get angry, you choose not to. When you want to hold it against them in word, thought, or deed, you choose not to. What are you doing when you do that, though? You're choosing to pay the debt for them. You're paying the price for their sin against you. So every time you choose to forgive someone, you're willfully saying that you're going to substitute yourself for the debt and pain that they caused you. Wrongdoing, sin, and debts do not go away unless something or someone pays for them. So this is why the modern readers should both affirm sin and judgment. Because wrongdoing and payment for wrongdoing, they go hand in hand. And our sin is a barrier between us and God. It just is. It's there. And so outside of Christ, outside of some kind of payment, we are estranged from God. There has to be a payment for it. Could we ever do enough to pay that debt? Or will God forgive us? And what will it cost him if he does? And someone had to pay the price for the sin caused against God in Egypt. There was a debt for the evil that had been done. So this is why there was a dead lamb or a dead son in every household. They paid the price for the great debt. But what scripture shows us is that though the lamb paid the price for God's people, this was a temporary payment. It was almost like writing a check and giving it to someone to pay for their services. It counts as a temporary payment. But until they cash that check... The transaction isn't fully done. And it's not fully paid for. There's a deeper spiritual payment that needs to be paid for for their sin. And there's a deeper spiritual payment that needs to be paid for us, for our sin. The Passover is a beautiful story because God provided a substitute for his people to save them, to get them out of Egypt from their oppression, their true slavery, and their brokenness. But it's glorious because it points to God's grand plan of redemption itself. It points to the time that Jesus Christ looked at the world, saw that it was in great debt. And he decided that he would pay the cost himself. Someone had to pay it. And he chose to. Just like when God looked at Egypt and said, everyone in this city will meet my judgment unless the debt is paid. So too did God look at the world and say, Everyone will meet judgment unless the debt is paid. And Jesus said, I'll do it. On the cross, Jesus removed that barrier. He paid our debt. And this is the correct response from us. It's faith. It's faith. It's believing that he did that. Trusting in that. Think about the Israelites. They put faith in the blood of the lamb that would save them. That they put over their threshold. They trusted that that is what would make God pass over their homes because he said they would. In the same way, we must put faith in Christ's blood, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, the blood of the Lamb of the world to take away our sins. That is the gospel. 
And that's what Passover reminds us. So remember your salvation this morning, yes. But also remember how, before you put faith in Christ, you were estranged from him. You couldn't pay that debt, but Jesus could. Trust in him with your life. And it brings me to my second point. So Christ is our substitute in God's grand plan of redemption. We must remember who we were, estranged from him. Now we're going to see we must remember who we are, adopted as sons and daughters. So adopted, not just any sons and daughters, though, firstborn sons and daughters. And the subtle different matters for a bunch of reasons. And the theme of firstborn has come up multiple times as we're in Exodus. We've talked about adoption before. Um, remember in verse 12 said that uh, God was going to strike down every firstborn. So the, this firstborn thing has come up a lot. God called Israel his firstborn earlier. What's the big deal about it? Why do they matter? One thing I want to remind us is that here uh, in America, we are so conditioned to look at ourselves as individuals. It's our reputation, our successes, our achievements, our failures. But in the ancient Near East society, your family was the primary lens through which you saw yourself. It wasn't your individual accomplishments. It was, in your, it was your family's. It wasn't your individual reputation. It was your family's reputation. Your family was the most important signifier of who you were and how you define yourself. So the firstborn was the most important or privileged position of the family. Because in the firstborn, all the hopes of the family line continuing were placed on them. So the family's reputation, their success, their future achievements were all contingent on the firstborn. But here's the difference with the people of Israel. Because of the covenant they had with God and their sin against him since the garden, they all understood one thing, one really, really, really important thing. The firstborn of their family was God's. At a time when the firstborn got all the inheritance from the family, there was a message sent from God to his people. The life of your firstborn of every family is mine. There was a redemption price on their head. So this reframes the way we think about Abraham and Isaac. Remember that story where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain? This makes no sense to us, but it would have made sense to Abraham. Because had God told Abraham that he was to sacrifice Sarah on the mountain, Abraham would be like, what are you talking about? He was like, I'm hallucinating. But when he told him to take Isaac, his firstborn, he knew. That was God's claim to make. So he took him up there. And he hoped and hoped and hoped that God would provide a substitute. Someone or something to take Isaac's place. And God did, right? But that wasn't guaranteed and he didn't have to. God has always, though, provided a substitute for his people, for his adopted sons and daughters to take their place when judgment came. And this is what we see happening at the Passover. When judgment came down, not just Egypt, but for all the firstborn and all the land, man and beast, when judgment came down, God provided a substitute so that he could save his firstborn, Israel, his chosen people. This is the gospel. Again, this is where our hope is. When judgment day comes for us, it's not our sin that God is going to see, but Jesus who takes our place. But don't miss this. This is important. This is why I repeated some of this. God had to sacrifice who? His firstborn. Who was in that privileged position in the Trinity. All the hopes of the family were on the firstborn, right? So how the firstborn went, so did the family. 
That is true in the father and son relationship between God and Jesus. All of the hopes of the world rested on God's firstborn, how he went, the world went. This tells us a tremendous amount about the character of God. He was willing to let his firstborn son die. To take the sin of the world on his back, suffering in a way that no one had ever before. When Abraham took his son up on the mountain and hoped beyond all hope that God would provide a substitute for him, God didn't have anyone to do that for him. To provide a substitute. Jesus was the lamb. He was the ultimate lamb, the ultimate substitute. And God allowed him to be sacrificed for your sake and for mine. Think about this. God is so much in the business of salvation and restoration against all of sin that he would allow his firstborn son to die. But what's glorious about what Jesus did in rising again is that now all of us as God's people are in that privileged position. We are now firstborn sons and daughters adopted into God's family. And this is what I want you to take away with this morning. This changes the way that you view yourselves. In Christ, adopted as God's firstborn means that all the hopes, reputation, and legacy of God resides in me and in you. We are in that firstborn position collectively. This changes the way we move into the world, how we view holiness Because when the world sees us, they should see God. They should see his character. They should see all the things that make God worth following. They should see all the things that God cares about. Justice, mercy, truth, goodness, love. When they see us, they should see those things. Because we are God's firstborn sons and daughters collectively. We are defined now, not just as individuals. Not just as earthly families, but as a family of God. And we've talked about adoption often, both in the New Testament text in the past, in the months as we walk through Exodus. We talk about what a gift it is, right? And it is a gift. But we can't miss what it calls us to, because it calls me and you to something. It has called us to be on display in front of a watching world to show them who God is, what his character is. So when you hate your brother or sister in Christ for their political beliefs, what are you telling a watching world? When you refuse to repent of sin, what are you telling a watching world about God? When you refuse to forgive one another, what are you telling a watching world about God? When your everyday life looks exactly like the world around you, what are you telling the world about God? Your actions, your life, all of it belongs to God purchased by his firstborn son. This is a high calling Because as we go into the world, so does God. Your adoption is not just for you. It's for God and for the sake of the world. Do you live that way? That brings us to our final point. Christ is our substitute in in God's grand plan of redemption. And we were estranged before Christ. We're adopted in Christ. Now we're going to see that we are glorified in the future with Christ. The Passover, as we've said, is the most important liturgical ritual of the Hebrew people. It's their grand story of redemption and restoration, just like the cross is for us as Christians. But the Passover is also pointing to something in the future. 
The lamb that was slain and the blood put on the door turned away God's judgment temporarily. But as we said, it didn't pay the full price. Their sin condemned them eternally. The Passover meal, because of this, was always pointing to Jesus, who would bring deeper spiritual healing that we need. And the amount of Passover uh, overlap between the Passover meal and the sacrifice of Jesus are astounding. So think about this. The day that Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem was the same day that the Passover lambs were driven into the city to all of the families. So Jesus, the ultimate lamb to take away the sins of the world, entered the city along the very lambs that were symbolic of what he was about to do. And on the night that the entire city was celebrating the Passover feast, Jesus was presiding over his own Passover meal. And he stands up to begin to explain the different aspects of the meal. And he holds up the bread, the bread which he would explain is about the affliction, the, the bread of affliction that their ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that they could be free. And he doesn't say that this bread of their ancestors, uh, that this is the bread of their ancestors. He said, this is the bread of my affliction. He points to himself. It'll represent my suffering on behalf of God's people so that they'll be free. And when he picks up the wine representing the blood spilt to redeem God's firstborn from Egypt, Jesus said, this is actually my blood that will be shed for you. And then the oddest thing about the meal to the disciples was, all right, the bread is here. The wine is here. Where's the lamb? There was no lamb that night. Because what Jesus was saying is, I am the lamb. I am the substitute and sacrificial lamb. That night, Jesus was the Passover lamb. And not for the disciples, but for the world. And the next day, throughout the city, at twilight, all the lambs would be sacrificed in all of the town. All of the fathers would be preparing the offering, gathering their family, saying, God has provided a lamb for us. The priests were preparing a lamb uh, that was supposed to cover all of Israel that they would sacrifice that night. And that night, as they were slain, the king of the universe was hanging on a cross at twilight, dying. The lamb that came to take away the sins of the world, dying on a cross at the same exact time. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Of the lamb. The Passover doesn't just tell the story of Israel and God's salvation. Communion doesn't just fulfill the Passover feast as part of the new covenant, though it does. No, they all point to the future. When one day, when sin is done away with for good, when no more tears are shed, where death has lost its sting, when the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world returns to the earth, sets all things right again, we will feast with Him. We will feast with the Lamb who was slain. And then we'll spend eternity with him. This Passover meal is a foreshadowing to that meal one day when Christ returns. That we get to partake in as sons and daughters. This is the hope of the Passover story. One day we will be in glory with Jesus. This morning, yes, Jesus is our substitute. Yes, he died our death on the cross. He redeemed us as God's firstborn. But he also did something different. He rose again. You know, in Armageddon, that great, that great, great movie. Um, it's almost like the sacrifice that Bruce Willis played got him out of Egypt, right? Like, the asteroid went past the earth. They didn't all die, right? But murders were still committed that day, right? 
in the Armageddon land, in that universe. Murders still were committed. People died of cancer still. Death still happened. Anxiety was still prevalent. But what we believe as Christians is that when Christ returns, it's once and for all. All that is wrong will be set right again. Because Jesus substituted himself for us and died, he didn't just die, he rose again. So those lambs that were used as substitute throughout the Bible, throughout Hebrew culture for centuries to symbolize uh, the atonement, they, those lambs always stayed dead. But the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world is alive. He beat death. He conquered it. And he rose again in glory. And he's seated at the right hand of God, the Father. And one day he will return and make his dwelling among us. And in that moment we'll be glorified with him. That is our hope. That's the hope of the Passover feast. That is the hope in our remembering of being estranged from God. That's our hope being adopted as his firstborn sons and daughters. And that's our hope that we can cling to no matter how bad our anxiety gets. No matter how lonely we feel. No matter how much shame you feel for your choices. No matter how much 2020 has broken you down one day, you will be with Christ in glory if you put your faith in him. One day all will be set right again. The Passover is a reminder that Christ will always be our substitute in our sin and brokenness, but also it's a promise to something, to glory with him forever and ever. Amen.